During this episode of Making the Rounds, Failure is Not an Option series, we will be discussing cardiac electrophysiology, cardiovascular disease, and the early diagnosis, advancements in treatment, and the importance of managing atrial fibrillation. To learn more about these topics and other cardiology offerings at Banner Health, please visit bannerhealth.com forward slash heart. Making the Rounds dives into medical topics with those who know them best, healthcare providers. My name is Bridget, and I'll be your host for today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, thank you for tuning in. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Joining me today on Making the Rounds is Dr. Adavi Sridharan, an esteemed cardiac electrophysiologist at Banner University Medicine, Tucson, and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arizona Sarver Heart Center. Thank you for joining me and welcome to Making the Rounds. Thanks for having me, Bridget. Well, we're excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into electrophysiology. So I'm originally from upstate New York, Rochester, New York, and um, I did my undergrad in neuroscience, and I thought I was eventually going to end up in either neurosurgery or neurology. But during third year of medical school, I fell in love with medicine and cardiology specifically in that clinical practice was so research-based. And within cardiology, I find electrophysiology the most fascinating, obviously, because of the procedural, technical, and the uh, cerebral nature of the field. Well, we're excited to have you here at Banner Health, Dr. Sridharan. So to start us off, let's talk about the most common referrals you receive regarding atrial fibrillation or AFib. What are some of the reasons patients are typically referred to an electrophysiologist? One of the most common reasons uh, that we see patients these days is for atrial fibrillation, as you mentioned. Uh, It's one of the most common arrhythmias prevalent today, not just in the United States, but worldwide. But other reasons that we see patients are for other arrhythmias, including things such as supraventricular tachycardias, ventricular tachycardias. So those are those encompass all the tachyarrhythmias. And then we also see patients for bradyarrhythmias. Uh, so either sinus bradycardia or uh, any sort of AV block with this, with or without associated symptoms. Can you share with us what do patients present with? What are their symptoms when they are referred to you? It depends on what the underlying etiology of their symptoms is. For instance, in bradyarrhythmia, so either sinus bradycardia or patients that have high-grade atrioventricular block or AV block, those patients commonly present with lightheadedness or dizziness or presyncope or can have uh, frank syncope because of the slow heart rate and associated low blood pressure, sometimes also high blood pressure. For tachyarrhythmias, including atrial fibrillation, not uncommonly patients present with palpitations, but they can also have other symptoms like presyncope, may have syncope, um, fatigue. Those are probably some of the most common symptoms we see. Once a patient's referred What are some of the common electrophysiology issues surrounding AFib that you encounter? So once patients get diagnosed with AFib, which a lot of times, sometimes occurs incidentally, meaning that they present to their primary care doctor or some other routine elective procedure, and they are noted to have AFib without actually having any associated symptoms, then they are referred to us for further evaluation and management. First couple of evaluation points that I usually think about are the classification of their AFib. What is their burden of AFib? Are they in AFib 
all the time, meaning persistent or long-standing persistent AFib, or are they in AFib? Are they having episodes of AFib, and do they spontaneously convert back into normal rhythm and have brief paroxysms of AFib, called paroxysmal AFib? The, one of the most important things to answer when patients get diagnosed with AFib is also to know whether their uh, left ventricular systolic function, so we call it LVEF in cardiology, whether that is compromised. Because again, if patients have concurrent LV systolic dysfunction in the context of AFib, we try to be aggressive about managing AFib and controlling the rhythm so that any contribution of AFib in reducing their systolic function can be reversed. So not uncommonly, if they haven't already had one, I order an echocardiogram um, or a cardiac MRI. We usually start with echocardiogram just to assess their uh, left ventricular systolic function. Beyond that, the goal of treatment becomes controlling the patient's symptoms and then controlling the patient's heart rate if they have AFib with what's called rapid ventricular response, meaning their ventricular rates are um, higher than 110 beats a minute at rest. When you're talking about the diagnosis and you're discussing the medical imaging, an early referral and early intervention is really vital in managing AFib effectively. Can you explain why that is? Definitely. As you may have heard, um, there's a saying in cardiology and within EP especially that AFib begets more AFib. AFib, the natural progression of AFib is that it typically starts out as paroxysms, initially for a few seconds of runs of atrial tachycardia. Then if left untreated, these episodes become few minutes, then hours, then days, and days continuously become months and years. Now, when the heart is in AFib, the left atrium fundamentally remodels in such a way. Typically, there is a left atrial dilation and scarring, and this basically sustains AFib. So the longer you are in AFib, the heart fundamentally remodels to keep you in AFib. Therefore, the longer you will be in AFib unless this is treated. One reason that early diagnosis and management is important is to stop the progression of AFib as much as possible, either with medications or with newer technology such as catheter ablation procedure. And catheter ablation procedure is more effective if done early in the disease course as opposed to later in the disease course. So when it comes to management of AFib, the goals of treatment are twofold. One is if the patient is symptomatic in AFib, then our goal is to minimize symptoms for the patient so that their quality of life is better. Two, as I mentioned, if they have concurrent LV systolic dysfunction, then again, we tend to be aggressive about treating the AFib in order to minimize any damage to the left ventricular function and avoid any clinical heart failure symptoms. So when it comes to management of AFib, the most basic of interventions we can do is what are called rate control agents, basically trying to control the heart rate and prevent it from going too fast, the ventricular rates. And ideally the goal is less than 110 beats a minute at rest, but the lower, the better. These are done usually with uh, uh, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. The next level up in terms of medication management of AFib is um, our antiarrhythmic drugs. These are drugs that are meant to minimize episodes of AFib, minimize arrhythmia burden, 
and keep the patients in normal rhythm as much as possible. And depending on the patient's other comorbidities, such as either coronary vascular disease or other structural heart disease, uh, there are a few different options available uh, in antiarrhythmic drugs for rhythm control. We also have electrical cardioversion. So that's also a uh, way of uh, controlling the rhythm and trying to restore sinus rhythm, but it's not a permanent solution to AFib. It temporarily restores sinus rhythm, but whether or not a patient will remain in sinus rhythm and not revert back to AFib will depend on whether or not they're also on concurrent antiarrhythmic drug therapy and also how remodeled their left atrium is and how prone to AFib they are at the time of cardioversion. And finally, the catheter ablation is one of the most uh, more recent uh, available intervention that's available for uh, atrial fibrillation management. So it's a percutaneous procedure whereby we put up catheters inside the heart, cross over to the left atrium from the right atrium. Uh, it's all venous access. We go in through the interatrial septum into the left atrium. And the cornerstone of uh, catheter ablation and atrial fibrillation involves pulmonary vein isolation, basically isolating abnormal electrical signals that arise from the four pulmonary veins that come into the left atrium to prevent patients from having episodes of AFib. This procedure is typically done under general anesthesia. We can use either cryotherapy, so cold energy, or radiofrequency ablation therapy, heat energy, to accomplish pulmonary vein isolation. And the success rate of atrial fibrillation ablation for patients with paroxysmal AFib, meaning they are having episodes of AFib, but patients are still mostly in sinus rhythm. The success rates are about 80 to 90% these days. Whereas in persistent AFib, meaning patients have been in AFib continuously for at least more than seven days, Long-standing persistent is when they've been in AFib continuously for at least a year. Ablation success rates are now close to 50%. And this goes back to the idea that I mentioned previously, where the longer you've been in AFib, the more the heart is remodeled, the left atrium is remodeled to keep you in AFib. And so the harder it gets for us to do anything about it, to bring it back to sinus rhythm. So early diagnosis and early intervention is important because success rate of catheter ablation procedure, at least right now, is better, much better, if we intervene early in the disease course when patients are still paroxysmal as opposed to persistent. And hopefully with better technology and our better understanding of the pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation will improve these outcomes in the future. But right now, this is what we have. Are there any specific risk factors that correlate with the diagnosis or that correlate with the, the condition of AFib? When it comes to AFib, uh, we fundamentally don't understand the pathophysiology very well, but there are definitely risk factors associated with the development of AFib. Age is one of the biggest risk factors of AFib. Other common uh, risk factors include uncontrolled high blood pressure, untreated sleep apnea, concurrent heart disease, including coronary vascular disease, congestive heart failure, and diabetes. Thank you for that information. So when we talk about heart disease and we talk about risk factors, stroke is a is a big component of that. Can you share with us the risk factors surrounding stroke and AFib? So when it comes to management of AFib, the biggest intervention that 
any provider can provide for the patient is to minimize the risk of stroke. So as we know, atrial fibrillation increases a patient's risk of stroke. We assess this risk using this score called the chads vas score, which basically uses risk factors such as congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, age, prior incidence of stroke, vascular disease, and female as risk factors for stroke. So depending on the stroke risk score, guidelines indicate that patients should be on therapeutic anticoagulation with drugs such as apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, or pedoxaban, uh, which is also available now, to minimize this increased risk of stroke. So when a patient gets a new diagnosis of AFib, regardless of whether their AFib is persistent or paroxysmal or long-standing persistent, based on their chads vas score, if they have a chads vas score of two or more as a man or three or more as a woman, they should be started on therapeutic anticoagulation, as long as there are no contraindications to being on an anticoagulant, in order to minimize the risk of stroke. So when I see patients for AFib, I always make sure that they are already on an anticoagulant. And if they they are not, I always ask them about why they are not on an anticoagulant, especially if their CHADS vas stroke risk is high. There are also percutaneous interventions these days called left atrial appendage agglution devices. There are a couple devices available on the market now, Watchman and Amulet devices, that are now approved as an alternative to taking anticoagulant therapy. So if a patient is not on anticoagulation for any other contraindications, such as a history of GI bleed, or they are a high fall risk as they get older, then these options are also available in order to avoid being on an anticoagulant long-term. This is great information, Dr. Sridharan. It makes a lot of sense, and you're touching on the catheter ablation, which brings me into surgical interventions. What are some of those key surgical procedures that are involved in managing AFib? When it comes to surgical interventions for atrial fibrillation, there are a couple currently available options. One is the MACE procedure, the Cox MACE procedure, which has been around for years. This is typically reserved for people that are undergoing open heart surgery for any other reason, such as coronary artery disease, so they need a bypass surgery, or any sort of valvular disease, so they need either valve repair or valve replacement. And not uncommonly, patients with mitral valve disease have a high burden of AFib. So for these patients, if they have an existing diagnosis of AFib at the time of open heart surgery, they also end up getting Cox maze procedure done at the time of surgery in order to minimize their burden of AFib postoperatively. Another more uh, recent option is called the convergent procedure. It's an epicardial and endocardial hybrid procedure whereby a cardiac surgeon uh, via thoracotomy, uh, so basically opening up, doing a small incision in the left thorax to access the posterior epicardial part of the left atrium in order to deliver ablations on the outside epicardial surface of the left atrium. And the patients then return to an electrophysiologist like myself, typically six weeks after the procedure in order to undergo endocardial ablation procedure, which is basically 
very similar to the catheter ablation procedure I would do for a de novo paroxysmal patient. There is some data to suggest now that convergent procedures have been shown to have good outcomes in long-standing persistent AFib patients where endocardial ablation alone may not have as good a success rate because, as I said, the longer they've been in AFib, an endocardial procedure alone may not be enough to uh, restore and maintain sinus rhythm long-term. But if we also get rid of some of these epicardial triggers with the hybrid approach, the thought is that we get a better outcome for these patients um, in terms of restoring sinus rhythm and maintaining sinus rhythm long-term. To address the other half of your question where devices are involved in AFib. So not uncommonly in patients with AFib, especially because these are the biggest risk factor for AFib, these are patients that also concurrently have sinus node dysfunction. So a lot of the medications that we use, as we discussed, for patients with AFib are negative chronotropic agents. So they, by definition, make your make their heart rate slower. But when they are in sinus rhythm, these patients then end up having too low a heart rate where they end up having symptoms of bradyarrhythmias or basically symptoms related to sinus bradycardia. So in these patients, the only way to get around the fact that their heart rate is too low in sinus rhythm is by inserting a pacemaker. So we basically end up putting in pacemakers just so we can use either rate control agents like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers or even antiarrhythmic drugs, which not uncommonly also end up having negative chronotropic effects in order to control their AFib burden. So this is what we call tachybrady syndrome in that when they are in a rhythm they have really high tachycardic rates, whereas when they are in sinus rhythm, they have really low bradycardic rates. In regards to the devices, can you share with us how an electrophysiologist manages and follows these patients with their device therapy? There are two different kinds of devices that we usually deal with. So devices for bradyarrhythmias and devices meant to treat tachyarrhythmias. Pacemakers are devices that are bradyarrhythmia therapies. So when patients have either sinus node dysfunction, so their sinus rates are too slow and they have associated symptoms, or if they have any sort of AV block, we typically end up implanting pacemakers. So again, pacemakers are meant to prevent heart rates from dipping below the lower rate that we set it at. They don't do anything for tachyarrhythmias. They are meant to treat just the bradyarrhythmias. The other kind of devices that we implant are ICDs, implantable cardiac defibrillators. These are devices that are meant to treat tachyarrhythmias, typically ventricular tachyarrhythmias. So either VT, ventricular tachycardia, or VFib, ventricular fibrillation. These devices are indicated in patients that have cardiomyopathy, either ischemic or non-ischemic. So their left ventricular systolic function is typically less than 35%. Or for secondary prevention in patients who have suffered a cardiac arrest previously and have secondary to either VT or VF. So these are devices that treat ventricular rhythms, fast ventricular rhythms, and all transvenous ICDs also have the capacity to act as pacemakers if necessary. We also have subcutaneous ICD. So again, this is a defibrillator 
where the wire is implanted subcutaneously as opposed to transvenously. So we prefer subcutaneous ICDs in younger patients or patients with limited vascular access like patients on dialysis, but they lack any sort of uh, pacemaker capacity because they're completely extravascular um, and sit on the outside of the rib cage. After device implantation, patients should follow with an electrophysiologist longitudinally in order to make sure that the device is functioning properly, the device is set properly, and the leads are functioning without any sort of issues such as either lead fracture or dislodgement or anything like that. For pacemakers, guideline recommendations are that they're seen for device check at least once every six months or so. And for patients that have ICDs, the recommendations are that they're seen for a device check once every three months. More recently, especially during the pandemic era, there are also remote monitors available for patients where they can send in a remote interrogation of the device from home. And if the device function is normal, their in-clinic, in-person visits can be uh, spaced out a little bit more. But I would say in-person, they should at least be uh, evaluated by an electrophysiologist once a year for all these patients, just to make sure that they still have sufficient battery left on their devices and that the device system itself is functioning properly. And longitudinally, and especially for patients with defibrillators, it's important to follow with an electrophysiologist, especially if they receive therapy from the ICD to make sure that the shock that they received was appropriate for a life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia and that appropriate device settings are made if it was an inappropriate shock for some other arrhythmia, such as an atrial arrhythmia, or the physician also thinks about alternative interventions such as medication or catheter ablation if patients are having recurrent shocks in order to uh, avoid psychological issues from these shocks such as PTSD. Can you share with us device management, ensuring that the that the batteries are up to date? Can you share with us a little bit more about that? If you don't mind, give us a little more detail about the device management and pacemaker management and and what does that look like? Device management includes monitoring the battery status on the device. So typically, depending on the type of device and the manufacturer, typically devices these days last an average of about eight to 10 years. Lesser if the patient is dependent and or using the device more frequently. So for a patient with a pacemaker that's dependent on the pacemaker, their device battery would come up for replacement sooner than somebody that doesn't use the pacemaker as frequently. So for that patient, the battery might last close to 10, 12 years even. But when the battery is close to expiring, the device will give us an indicator called elective replacement indicator, where basically they still have a three to six month period during which time device generator replacement can be scheduled and completed. So for patients whose batteries are close to expiring, it's important, again, to see an electrophysiologist, maybe even more frequently than once every three months during that period to make sure that they get scheduled appropriately for a generator replacement. In regards to scheduling and referral pathways to an electrophysiologist, how does a patient get referred? Does that referral start with a cardiologist or can a referral be submitted by a primary care physician? 
Referrals, we, we receive referrals from primary care physicians or from general cardiologists. If, if a patient has a diagnosis of AFib, for instance, as I mentioned, which not uncommonly gets picked up incidentally without the patient having any symptoms, I recommend by the time they come to see me for evaluation, at least a ambulatory rhythm monitor to assess the burden of AFib so that I'm able to classify their AFib as either paroxysmal or persistent, and also an echocardiogram, as we talked about, just to get a baseline of their left ventricular systolic function. But referrals can come from primary care doctors if they have patients that they are managing for congestive heart failure. And despite being on guideline-directed medical therapy for three months, if the patients have persistently reduced left ventricular systolic function less than 35%, that would be an indication for primary prevention ICD placement. So as long as they have a recent echo and as long as the patient has been compliant with their maximally tolerated medical therapy, uh, we would be happy to see the patient for, as a referral directly from their primary care doctor. We also obviously receive referrals from general cardiologists that either manage heart failure patients or patients that they have seen for nonspecific symptoms like fatigue and or palpitations or presyncope and then get diagnosed with an arrhythmia as their etiology of the symptoms and are then sent to us for further uh, evaluation and management. Can you share with our listeners the importance of the collaboration between the electrophysiologist and the cardiologist and the primary care team? How important it is to have that continuity of care? And here at Banner Health, we do have a multidisciplinary team of cardiac experts. Can you share with our listeners the importance behind having that collaborative team approach? That's a very good point. It really does take a village to manage AFib. While electrophysiologists, we play a role, especially when it comes to using antiarrhythmic drug therapy and catheter ablation procedure. As an electrophysiologist, I rely very much on general cardiologists and primary care physicians to manage the patient's concurrent systolic heart failure if they have any because it takes such close follow-up and close monitoring of their labs and their blood pressure and things like that. And patients also see their primary care doctors more frequently than they do their electrophysiologists. And if they bring up uncontrolled symptoms related to their atrial fibrillation, it's important that there is open communication between all of these different providers so that patients can be managed appropriately and without a delay in care for the patients, but also managing these symptoms as an outpatient as opposed to requiring emergent or urgent inpatient admission or uncontrolled atrial fibrillation symptoms. Before we conclude, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about AFib management and the advancements in this field at Banner Health? When it comes to AFib, my take-home messages would be that the most important thing as healthcare providers that we can do for patients with a new diagnosis of AFib is to minimize their risk of stroke and early diagnosis, early intervention, early detection, and early referral to electrophysiology is important, as we talked about uh, repeatedly during the course of this podcast. And the technology related to interventions for AFib keeps on improving. So even if a patient has been in AFib for a long time and has not been evaluated by an 
an electrophysiologist, it would be reasonable to have them see an electrophysiologist to discuss more newer technologies such as the conversion procedure, the hybrid ablation procedure, to see if that would be a reasonable option for these patients who have longstanding persistent AFib. So is there any educational or awareness topics, recommendations that you want to give to a patient? The first time, if you are symptomatic, the first time you get diagnosed, you may be diagnosed in the emergency room because you have symptoms that have not yet been explained to you. So you may have to go to the emergency room to get your heart rate under control or be prescribed new medications, control agents that you can take as an outpatient. But once you have a diagnosis, once you realize what your AFib symptoms are, this is a very manageable condition in the outpatient setting in that it just requires slow titration of these either rate control agents or antiarrhythmic drugs in order to minimize your symptoms until you can get to catheter ablation if that's what you choose to do. But even for a patient, my message would be that AFib is not a life-threatening condition. The most important thing that you should do if you have a high risk of stroke associated with AFib is be on a blood thinner, but managing AFib itself can be done successfully in an outpatient setting. Be a close follow-up with your primary care doctor, general cardiologist, and electrophysiologist. Thank you so much, Dr. Sridharan, for shedding light on this very important topic and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you, Bridget, again for having me. I hope this was educational for everybody. If you want to learn more about the cardiac electrophysiology specialists and programs available at Banner Health, please visit bannerhealth.com forward slash heart for more information. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on Making the Rounds.